Welcome back to the Stretch Four Podcast. This is another episode, episode 12, recording live from my home studio this week. Been a very, very, feel like a very, very um, busy week in San Francisco with Tech Week. I've attended three events this week. Three is enough for me. Definitely very, very compelling to see Tech Week kind of emerge as a very, as a destination for San Francisco in early June, LA next week, which I'll be a part of. Got two events in LA next week, so heading down there. But other than that, this week's show is power-packed. We have an interview with T. Scott Patterson, who's the CEO of Tumble. So we're getting to get into a laundry conversation. I think it's going to be very interesting. Scott built out this company through the pandemic. He's a former Marine Corp. He talks a bit about utilizing that part of his background to help him build his company, close his initial corporate contracts, and build out the initial product. Um, Additionally, we're going to get into a topic that I've kind of been, a company that I've kind of been tracking, trolling for maybe the past 18 months. The information uh, put out a piece this week on MoonPay, which is a crypto to payment rails company based in Miami. Uh, It's ran by very interesting figure who this week the information exposed a lot more information about a big round that they did back in 2021 where the co-founder as well as his team cashed out substantially on something that we now see is definitely not as valuable as it was valued at that peak. Uh, So we'll get into some things there, look at some real estate purchases in Miami that are fairly interesting and kind of just the overall experience of being a founder and what secondary shares are, how they work. And this in this case, we see how MoonPay was able to capitalize substantially on the, um, the, the crypto market in 2021. Additionally, this week, Plaid was covered in a uh, big Bloomberg piece. So we'll talk a bit about Plaid. Uh, Plaid is a very interesting company. It's been around now a little over 10 years. A lot of the issues around screen scraping, which is a very, very hot topic right now because AI, most AI companies are building their models on data that they're screen scraping from public and private websites. Uh, Plaid has really laid the foundation for this and I think made it mainstream. And this article goes into the ups and downs they've experienced in the past two to three years after being, you know, supposedly being bought by Visa, that transaction being null and void based on some DOJ uh, factors and now what they're doing today, how they're, uh, you know, how they've kind of opened the market. I mean, my company, Modern Tax, is always kind of put in the bucket of Plaid. There's other companies that we'll talk about uh, that get that have built aggregation or data scraping solutions. But it's very interesting, very interesting article to see what Plaid will become. And then, last but not least, in our uh, founder performance space, we'll talk a bit about Mark Zuckerberg and his Memorial Day Fitness. Murph workout and the questions he received and the doubt he received from Twitter. I uh, got into a little Twitter, uh, one of those like Twitter conversations that just kind of continue to go on throughout the week related to him completing that Murph challenge in a set time. Some people believing it was impossible for him to do it. Some believe people just realizing that a guy like Mark Zuckerberg probably is at a peak performer as far as fitness. Uh, so we'll talk a bit about that and how fitness again always seeps into the founder journey. And also we'll talk a bit about uh, the relation to, you know, he, you know, what he did. So we'll get into that. We'll get into that conversation. So Power Pack show today, talk a bit about my time at at, at SF Tech Week. I spent time at um, an A16Z Stonks event, as well as a Snowflake Altimer event last night. So I had some interesting conversation, met some interesting people across the board. Uh, And then we'll get into our interview with Scott. But Glad to have you here on episode 12 of the Stretch 4 podcast, getting this podcast on a Tuesday. Hope you all are having a great day and let's get started with the show. Jumping right in on our first topic, what we're talking about on the Stretch 4 podcast this week is MoonPay and their CEO and other executives who cashed out before their crypto business dropped. This was reported by Adian Ryan at The Information. 
Uh, it highlights something that I've actually been tracking for quite some time. I was sometimes I'm a troll on Twitter. I just see deals that are going through and that are happening in the VC uh, Twitter ecosystem that I just know for some reason just don't make sense. And it just doesn't seem sustainable. MoonPay is one of those deals that I've regularly tweeted about and just felt that it was very much, it was the peak and penultimate space of technology and venture investing that we were definitely at the top. And, you know, even referencing back November 9th, 2022, um, I reference it almost as a Ponzi scheme. Just the fact that a company could raise that amount of money in such a short amount of time and have such a clearly, you know, a clear fact that the deal just wasn't going to be like a good deal. And so let's unpack it here on the podcast. So basically, uh, MoonPay raised this $555 million round. If you're looking at the YouTube, you'll see here the snapshot from the information. Uh, in case you missed it, I scooped Tuesday that insiders at MoonPay, including BJ Turn CEO Ivan Soto Wright, sold $150 million worth of shares in a secondary transactions, part of a $555 million November 21st funding round. And a few weeks after the Series A announcement, Soto Wright bought a $38 million Miami Beach estate that was previously owned by retired Miami Heat star Chris Bosch. So as you see also in the show, if you're looking on YouTube, this house, and it's very quick, like the real estate part is interesting. Chris Bosch sold his house for $14 million and the real estate company that purchased it sold it to uh, Ivan for $38 million. They raised $405 million by selling shares to investors, and the remaining $150 million represented shares cashed out by the insiders in the secondary transaction. So it wasn't just uh, Mr. Wright who cashed out in this deal. It was also his co-founders. And so you see here, there are three co-founders. What's interesting, and there's another deal that happened, a similar deal. They exited, I believe, for $250 million to FTX last year called Embed. And the structure of the cap table showed that the founder basically had a entity or an investment firm set up that owned most of the shares. So in this case, Wright, who is the founder, Soto Wright, CEO founder, and his team, they had set up a investment fund that essentially was the first, it's called Holder Venture Capital, uh, that they founded in 2008. And they owned a large portion of MoonPay, which, again, this is nothing that's illegal, right? Like, it's just the fact that they were able to capitalize. And the thing that is like now, as many people will find out in venture, the deal has already been devalued by large investors. Uh, Tiger Global marked down the investment by 18%. I think it's substantially lower than that. It's probably... 81% down from this valuation that they got uh, back in 2021 at $3.4 billion. I mean, at $3.4 billion, I mean, I would say they're definitely down. If they went out to raise right now, raising at a billion dollars would probably not be a market for them. Uh, so you see the factor of just how these things happen. And what's the learning? You know, what are you saying, Matt? It's First, it's if you're in 2021 and you're a founder, you're able to cash out, you're super lucky and, you know, God bless you. So I don't think Ivan Soto, right? If you look at his Instagram, he's not worried about things. I mean, I think now the problem is what is MoonPay, right? I mean, it's like, is this company worth anything if crypto is not going to be what people believed it was going to be in 2021, which at least in the short term, it's not going to be. And then what does this mean for future companies and how structures are set up and how secondary shares work, right? Secondary shares, which I've talked about in this podcast before, are shares that founders or early stage team members are able to sell as a part of financing rounds to, you know, liquidate. And it is now becoming heavily scrutinized. Most of the people I talk to now, secondaries are pretty much, it's a locked door, right? No one's doing them. If you're a CEO founder, it's very hard to sell and do any kind of secondary transactions. And a lot of what happened in 2021 is leading to that. And 
you know, there's nothing wrong with buying a $38 million house. You cash out $150 million. I'm sure he's using that house for business purposes. But it's just the fact that we see the the kind of end goal of a lot of companies that were being built 2020, 2021. And the end goal was to cash out. And like it was to dump this onto investors and a lot of celebrities invested in this deal. But it's again, it's one of those things where it has this trickle down effect, right? MoonPay now will affect the next company that tries to go out and raise at substantial rounds. And it'll create scrutiny for founders, which means it will be harder for founders with just reading another tweet where a founder in New York raises a $5 million seed round of funding and the venture fund that invested in him is telling them basically you can't make a, a New York City cost of living salary to run your company. So we're we're seeing a self-correction because of issues like MoonPay to where venture capital is kind of coming down on the founder, right? The founder is no longer in control. The founder no longer has freedom. The founder no longer is probably eligible to do secondaries unless you're like a super hot AI company. And so we're going to continue to see this. And as these stories come out, it just will shed light on there are implications of this, right? MoonPay is not going to pay those implications, right? They cashed out their $150 million. They got to live up to the valuation. Probably won't happen. But the next founder that comes along and tries to get a secondary or tries to do some kind of financing to cash out some of the early workers, founder teams are going to get a lot more scrutiny. So again, my bet on MoonPay is that you'll continue to see uh, a downward trajectory of this company. Uh, I think right now, according to this report, uh, volumes um, on the MoonPay platform, which essentially is MoonPay is essentially a product that if you want to sell NFTs or buy NFTs with credit cards, it's a crypto to, to payment platform. I mean, it's interesting when they were at their peak, they were pitching themselves as like the Stripe for crypto. Turns out that, you know, Stripe itself is is doing some of these same things. And a lot of these companies like MetaMask and Bitcoin.com, you know, the volumes have fell substantially, right? 50 to 70%. And it's already a competitive market. So you can imagine as transaction volumes go down, what does MoonPay go next? And I'm assuming they'll probably pivot out of crypto at some point. Wouldn't be surprised if they try to rebrand themselves as something related to AI. But it is a very crowded space in a market that is very much going down as far as like volume. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see. Kudos to Ivan, right? If I'm ever in Miami, I know where I want to hang out because Ivan Soto Wright did pretty well. You know, regardless of what happens with MoonPay, he did fairly well for himself. So kudos to him. He was able to take advantage of it, but it does make it more difficult for the next founder that's trying to do that or trying to do a secondary. You just got to really have your shit together these days to, to do any of these types of deals. Moving on to topic number two, another founder in the news and in the story this week is Zach Parrott. Zach Parrott is a fellow North Carolinian. I grew up in Charlotte. He grew up in Winston-Salem. Just putting that out there. Plaid is the company of topic this week. Bloomberg did a deep dive in their market magazines art section on how a $13 billion fintech that angered Jamie Dian, Jamie Dimon won over banks by Jenny Serain. And Jenny just delves into the history of Plaid, which not to bore you, Plaid is a company, you know, most notoriously known for allowing Venmo to take off like a rocket ship and be able to connect your bank account to fintech applications to move money. Zach is a 35 year old, actually the same age, quite, quite, you know, interesting. He's a little bit further along than me, but, you know, still got time. But Plaid, uh, a few things to highlight here. Fintech is taking a hit. We talked about MoonPay, crypto. I think the crypto and fintech are fairly bearish markets right now. This is coming from a founder somewhat involved in the fintech ecosystem. Even though there's a lot of interest, like I spent last week uh, at a Finnovate event here in San Francisco at a pitch, there's a lot of people. There's still a lot of interest, but it's just not as hot as it has been. And Plaid has, I would say, been the, the along with Stripe, been the most impactful company in the past 10 years in terms of just widespread adoption and just allowing for all these various use cases to be unlocked. 
One of the highlights of this article, it talks about Plaid having, you know, 8,000 or so fintech apps using the platform today. That's been pretty consistent for the past two to three years. Most of the articles and, and information that have come out around Plaid has been, that's really been the ballpark. So it kind of, it really opened my eyes to kind of the, the, the expansion of fintech, right? Like, the proliferation of this market over the past 10 years has been, you know, fascinating, right? It's really went from not even a word to like whole industries with giants like Plaid and Stripe that are multi-billion dollar companies. But there is a cap on the expansion. And I think there's this ethos that or this belief that people have that every company is a fintech company, which in a way, yes, money's not going away. We all need money to survive. We all need money to, you know, live. But there is limitations on how many ways you could skin the cat, so to speak. So, you know, there's only so many ways that money movement can make money and only so many companies that can actually take part in that. Plaid has generally been, you know, Plaid's very interesting. It's a fascinating company, but when you think about it and what they do, they still have not reached profitability. And it's like, you would think that is the most, that would be if a friend of mine who's like, how are they not profitable, right? It seems like that would be the most profitable business. You're literally moving data from one app to another app and making, you know, pennies on a dollar. But this highlight talks about Parrot who has, you know, shoots his office, you know, shots of him in the Plaid office, which is here in SF. So I still think it's very interesting as much as people have tried to attack San Francisco as, you know, not the place to be as it pertains to these industries. Plaid is still based here. Stripe is still based here. You do see moving, but there's still a lot of great company building being done in San Francisco. I'll speak a bit of that later here in, uh, at SF Tech Week, but it Plaid went through an interesting time where they were going to be bought about three years ago for $5.3 by Visa, but the antitrust issue with the DOJ and Visa controlling this type of market had some red flags and the deal didn't happen. And now Plaid's valued at $13 billion. And again, they're another company that is left to live up to that valuation, which was set by Altramar Capital, which invested in them uh, post derailment of that Visa deal. And so essentially Plaid has went through a lot of learnings, right? Another area that they've kind of modernized and made mainstream is screen scraping, which a lot of companies, including my company, as well as several other ones like Kodat and MX, and just a long tail of now companies that are scraping all types of financial data from payroll to bank data. Uh, all this information is being scraped. And, and it's really interesting because as we live in a world of AI obsession, which many of the most popular AI models are built on screen scraping tools, right? I mean, OpenAI, um, many of them, they don't show you how and where they get their data from, but most of the data comes from the internet, from both public and private sites. Plaid, I would say, is probably one of the most mainstream companies in this area. And even though this article references that only 25% of the data that they actually access now is through scraping because they've had to build out these data partnerships with banks, they've had to pay this $58 million settlement, actually a former employee of Plaid, who's now a founder himself, talked to me about this and they had a 20% layoff and he's like, you know, they had to pay out $58 million of the X money that they raised are already not profitable. So there's a lot of questions around the financial livelihood of the company. I think they're fine, but it's like they have had to do some layoffs, but the screen scraping, they paid the price for screen scraping, maybe more than anyone trying to modernize and make open banking a real thing. And they've really, you know, laid the foundations for a lot of other companies, but it's still a massive company that I think is going to have an interesting outcome. I mean, at $13 billion in market cap, again, based off that number being set in 2021, you have to probably give it a 30, 40% haircut today if they were to go out and raise money. But the usability of the app, it's used by one in three US bank account holders. And so it has partnerships with now 45 financial institutions. So it's a massive company and it's going to be around. It's just a matter of how long is it going to be private, what the public comps are going to be, and what the whole data sharing world is going to break down to. Last thing in this article that was fairly interesting, it highlights how the bank run that happened with Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic Bank to an extent, and some of these other banks 
was really driven by some of the same things that Plaid has tried to kind of make its mission, right? Open banking, you're the consumer, you own your bank data, you can share it with whoever you want. Well, when there's a bank run, like it was on Silicon Valley Bank, tools like Plaid made it super simple to transfer money. And many will believe that that was what led to the bank run on Silicon Valley and for Silicon Valley being, uh, you know, going out of business. So it's a very interesting company. I think it doesn't get as much coverage because, again, it's a back end tool. Many people don't know what Plaid is. Uh, maybe even a lot of people listen to this podcast had never heard of Plaid because it's such a back end tool. But if you're in the space, you're in the Silicon Valley zeitgeist, you know exactly what it is. So I thought Bloomberg did a good job of covering the trajectory of this company that's been around, you know, now 10 years, kind of crazy. But it'll be interesting to see the trajectory of it moving forward. And will it live up to this valuation? Will it see another haircut? Will it have to do other layoffs? Will it have other banks that are saying they don't want to uh, share data? Will there be more lawsuits coming against the company? Because, I mean, they've been aggregating data for you know the better half of 10 years. I'm pretty sure there's going to be more questions around the use of this data. But I think it's a super impactful company. It's super useful. Most people have to use it every day or every week if you're transferring money or doing anything in Venmo or any of these platforms. So be very interesting to see what happens with Plaid. I'll link that article in the show notes. Last but not least this week, I want to get to a topic. Me and this guy get a lot, get into it a lot on Twitter. And, you know, I have no vendetta against him, Sam Parr, but he made a post about Zuck doing the Murph challenge, which the Murph challenge, as described by Zuckerberg, is a challenge from Lieutenant Murphy, who I believe is a Navy SEALs trainer. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not. Yeah. Lieutenant Michael Murphy who is a Navy SEALs uh, trainer, or Michael Patrick Murphy, Navy SEALs officer who passed away in 2005, highly decorated. And his workout regimen uh, that he made popular amongst folks is the Murph Challenge. What it includes is, and I'm going to try to do this because it's actually a pretty fascinating workout, I didn't get to do it on Memorial Day to, to, to put it out there like Mark Zuckerberg, but you know, there's other days that it could be done. And one of the favorite workouts of Mark Zuckerberg, as he talks about on his Facebook post, I believe it was, is that you run a mile, then you do 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and then you run another mile, all while wearing a 20-pound weighted pack. He claimed that he got it done at 39 minutes and 58 seconds, and his girls, his daughters, did a unweighted version in 15 minutes. And they did it, uh, you know, as well. So it was just, you know, I'm assuming Zuckerberg, you know, just on Memorial Day is doing something, you know, he felt good and he's just, you know, working out. I mean, it wasn't surprising to me that Mark Zuckerberg is a high performer when it comes to fitness and athletics. I mean, it's just the guy is obviously super uh, successful in terms of building out Facebook. And also he's a super obsessive person. So, you know, part of fitness is if you put in the time and work and effort, and you're driven, you can accomplish a lot. And so you think, I mean, I'm pretty sure when Zuckerberg posted this, he didn't expect this backlash, but it ended up getting about 1.9 million views on Twitter. Sam uh, posted that, okay, I guess Zuck is pretty cool now. And if, you know, Sam Parr, he's a founder of The Hustle, which he sold a HubStack, uh, HubSpot. He's also pretty, pretty outspoken on his fitness journey as well. He does a lot of challenges. Uh, I think most recently one that he was doing was the NFL Combine Workout Challenge. So, you know, he's into this stuff. You know, I'm into this stuff to an extent. So it's a fairly interesting thing to like set a benchmark of like the time that Zuckerberg is doing the Murph Challenge. It seemed to be a pretty impressive time. Again, I don't know what the quadrants are. I've never done it. So I'd have to do it myself to figure out like even where I fit into that club. But, you know, sub 40 minutes is supposedly pretty legit when you consider that there are top performers are under 40. So what happens is, you know, many people just go out and do this because people want to follow and be like Zuckerberg. And then, you know, the tweet, the tweets, things start happening. So, you know, for me, I was just an impression. I didn't take it from a position of like, you know, again, I don't I didn't even know like 40 minutes is like the bar for this this thing. Right? I was just like, I mean, unsurprisingly, I'm not surprised that Zuckerberg has like a pretty aggressive fitness workout regimen and would hit this number because it's like. 
he's a billionaire, right? He probably has a personal trainer. He has probably everything you need. Like if you have that type of drive and you have that type of money, like the world is your oyster, right? I mean, if it, if you, I mean, even like people that don't are super, you know, there's all types of tools and all types of optimization you can do to, to improve your fitness and things like that. And so I just said, hey, can't we just accept the fact that a billionaire has all the right tools and resources and to accomplish this? I mean, I'm pretty sure Zuckerberg is not sitting around on his couch eating potatoes every day or, you know, chips every day. I'm sure he has a very, very regiment workout schedule. I'm sure he has a personal trainer. I'm pretty sure he has a Navy SEALs personal trainer that comes to his house every day and takes him through very, very curated workouts based on all the things he's trying to accomplish or goals he's trying to hit. I mean, I think that's just what everybody in this world of Silicon Valley and tech now is becoming more aware that they need to have. So I don't think Zuck is any difference. He just has like an insurmountable amount of resources. And Sam responded to me that maybe, but you can't change genetics. But, you know, again, I responded, hey, from what I've seen, all this high intensity stuff is pretty normal. He's not even 40 years old yet. So it wasn't something that I thought was like so crazy for him not to be able to accomplish. But people had a problem with it. It's condescending to relate his wealth to his ability to to stay fit. Him being wealthy has nothing to do with that. I'm like, first of all, like it kind of does, right? I mean, high performance trainers, like people, I think, I mean, I talk about fitness a lot here because I think it's super important. And I have like, I'm running a half marathon. I'm trying to get to the 9.15 to 9.30 average mile pace. That's a, that's a lot of work. I have to train. I have to run three, four times a week. But I do think it's like, it's a fact of like having the resources. I mean, prof- there's a reason professional athletes are, in, you know, the best physically conditioned athletes in the world because they generally have people helping them do that. And so to be surprised that Mark Zuckerberg hit any of these metrics to me was not crazy, but to a lot of Twitter, it was just, it was a debate on like, he has to show me that he did it. I need proof that he did this. And it's like, I mean, it's pretty sure that, you know, he was able to do it. (laughs) You know, the world record I think was four minutes faster. So a lot of people were questioning that, but maybe he'll do it on the day of and he'll record it and he'll make it an Instagram story or feed to prove people wrong. I mean, I think we live in this world now where everybody wants to, doubt something that you can do. Uh, Sam went on to say, hey, so this Merv time by Zuck, he said he did it in 39 minutes. That's world-class time. It's causing too much controversy. We need to see this on film. Someone, anyone, please make him film it. I I mean, maybe he will do it, but it's just, it's pretty crazy that like you can just definitely do something and and accomplish it and post it and people are just going to doubt you. And I'm pretty sure the way that Zuckerberg thinks, I'm pretty sure he's pretty upset about this and he's going to have to like do something to prove himself to the world and the people like Sam Parr. So we'll track, we'll track that. I'm expecting an entire content rollout for Zuck on his fitness regimen. And I'm expecting it within the next two to three months. Welcome to the Stretch Four podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by a fellow founder, CEO, Scott Patterson, who's the CEO of a company called Tumble. Uh, Tumble is a prop tech company that has evolved from a networking, a network of laundry rooms to a marketplace for laundry services. Scott is building this business as a B2B business, as opposed to other players in the space as a more direct-to-consumer business. On this today's show, Scott will share his story of his terrible laundry experience that led to the founding of Tumble, how the company has grown over time. He's now raised uh, reportedly or, or reportedly a little over $8 million in funding for his startup, which is fairly large for a seed stage company. We'll also learn more about that fundraising experience. Uh, what were his strategies? How did he convince people to uh, invest in Tumble? So looking forward to an insightful conversation today with Scott. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. So Scott, jumping in, uh, kind of the, as when we met, you were kind of telling me how the Tumble business model works. And I would love to know, like, how did you land on this idea? Because obviously laundry affects us all. I mean, we both live in yeah. San Francisco. So uh, if you're not living in a place that has washer and dryer, which 
I fortunately have been for the past three years. And it's been a probably one of the best things about my apartment. But many people don't, especially if you're living in larger cities and metropolitan areas. What was your experience that first led you believe this is a big opportunity and a problem that needs a fully dedicated venture back startup to go build it? Yeah, absolutely. So the way this started is I, I spent 11 years in the Marine Corps, dropped to reserves, became a chemist, worked at Genentech, uh, and actually got deployed one last time to Japan and was making the switch over to management consulting, which is what actually brought me into the city. And in that time, when I got back from the Marine Corps, there was a little lag time before that job started at Accenture. And I was sleeping on my friend's couch in Knob Hill as all good startup stories start and ran into this laundry room that was just awful. So it, the, the biggest pain point in there, there was a card system that was driven by cash. So I'd have to, and it only took $20 bills. So I'd have to go get a 20 somewhere. Uh, I'd put it into this machine. It would load up a card. Hopefully that card would work in one of the washer machines or dryers. The machines were constantly broken. The dryers were, uh, my stuff would get stolen. They were, those were broken. Things would get thrown away. Finally, someone broke in and actually stole the card machine out of the wall. And it took the company about six weeks to replace. Wow. So I had to go around the corner to a laundromat and use quarters uh, and see this whole other side of it. Um, and it finally kind of really came to uh, a point where it was kind of a rainy day and a homeless guy walked in with all of his wet, dirty stuff and threw it in with someone's clean white sheets while I was drying. And so I was just, I was pretty done at that point, ended up using wash and fold for a bit until the, um, till the laundry room was fixed. So through that sort of chain of, of pain points, I really was started to wonder like, why, first of all, like, why does this exist? You know, this is 2019 San Francisco. So I had, you know, I think I have the same phone that I did back then. It was like an iPhone 12 and everyone has a phone. Why can't I pay with my phone? Why can't like, why does this experience exist? And the realization was that the industry is very much focused towards coin operated laundry um, because that is what laundromat owners want. They want cash flow businesses. They want uh, cash businesses and they want it to be unattended. So there was not a lot of focus on the multifamily side, which is where, you know, it's a very different buyer. So you, and this is a crazy, you know, like experience. Cause when I first moved to San Francisco, I was using these uh, coin based laundry options. I mean, me and my wife in our building, we had to, we had to go get quarters to put in the laundry machine. So I found myself leaving work, going to get a 20 and, you know, getting, getting $20 a quarter from the bank quarters from the bank consistently. Uh, our building, it was, it was more about the experience. Like we had a washer and dryer in our building, but you know, it was only two, two options. So they would typically be filled up. And then we had to walk down up and down these like creaky stairs to get there <laughs> yeah. into this like basement. So it, it definitely is probably for people that live in cities, probably one of the worst experiences if you don't have in unit washer and dryer. And so as you, as you started to develop this, like what was the first flywheel of creating this company? You, you were in between this, you know, you're doing your service to the country through the military, working in consulting, moved to San Francisco, experiencing this, you know, how did you evolve from this pain point uh, that you had to go through to actually starting, you know, what was your MVP? What was your earliest version of the product? Yeah. I was, I, since I was sleeping on my friend's couch and had, job hadn't started a lot of time on my hands. So I just talked to people in San Francisco. I was new to the city. You know, I, I had a pretty good friend network. I was going around and so many people had problems. with. I mean, everyone I talked to had a story of how bad this was. I knew a lot of people in property management, the incumbents in the space like were terrible. And it was just a very clear burning need. Even if this wasn't going to be a venture backable business at that point, it would at least get used. Like people would buy it. And so I raised 50 grand friends and family. And at that point I was teaching myself to code. I was using code Academy. I was watching YouTube videos and basically strung together this very not man, like not well put together prototype that would at least 
it would do the, the, the functions that we wanted. You could control it with your phone. You could pay for it. You get a notification when your laundry is done and you could lock the dryer. And those were like the four core things that everyone wanted. And I worked with a product, like a product group here in San Francisco to get the prototypes built. We built three washers and four dryers to actually replace the machines that were in this basement laundry room that I was living in. And I won that contract. Hmm. Um, which was, which was pretty awesome. And was that a contract um, through like, a, was through a municipality or like, how did, how did that, uh, you know, how did you, it, it was through the, through the property management company. Okay. Yeah. Through the property management company and it works off a of rev share. Uh, that's how this was traditionally done. And the install date was supposed to be April of 2020. So COVID happens, everyone goes into lockdown, the property management company totally falls apart, deal falls apart, mm-hmm. get extremely busy at Accenture because <laughs> mm-hmm. everyone goes online. Yep. And it wasn't until a coin shortage happened about six months later that the business really took off. Okay. Okay. So the coin shortage happened um, and talk, walk me through that, right? We're in the middle of the pandemic. Um, 20, you know, you started this in 2019, 2020 is pretty much a pandemic year. What, how did the coin shortage happen? And obviously that obviously impacts the business because you can't right. use these coin operated laundry machines without coins. What was the trigger there? Was it just the, the banks? Cause they weren't physically letting people in. They just didn't have quarters. What happened there? Yeah. So it, it had to do with circulation of, of cash at that point. No one was using cash. So yep. quarters weren't being circulated. Yep. You, you couldn't go to the bank. I mean, there's like a, a multitude of, of reasons, but more interestingly, the largest landlord in San Francisco, Veritas had about starting in 2018 had started canceling all of their contracts with those incumbent third party companies that, you know, like I mentioned before, were, were pretty awful and installing their own coin operated equipment. So I basically got a phone call. It was like, Hey, we love what we're doing. Can we have a meeting? And I talked to them and they were, they were basically like, great. Can you do 300 properties? And I could, I was like, I can do a couple, you know, like give me an LOI and uh, I'll see what we can do. And so that ultimately allowed us to go raise, raise money and, and show that like, okay, if the largest property management company in San Francisco has this problem, it's probably a larger business yeah. problem across the country. Mm-hmm. And so they give you that LOI that they, uh, and we'll talk a bit about that just with, you know, cause I feel like your business is super interesting in that it is B2B you're selling into the Veritas, uh, of, of the world, the Avalon bays of the world thing, you know, these large property management companies, what did you have? Like, what was from that point? What was your, you know, did you go raise money right away? Or like you had this MVP, you had this like app that you kind of put together. What did you have to do next in your, in your line of yeah. executing that? We, we, we went and raised money. So in order to, we, you know, basically we already had that first customer as a big customer is worth millions of dollars to this day worth millions of dollars a year. And there, they, they had, it was such an interesting ICP for us. Um, because they act, what's the ICP? Uh, it's like our profile, like our, our customer profile, ideal customer profile. Yeah. Like your person. Exactly. And it was perfect for us because they actually didn't care about the laundry revenue at all. They just wanted someone to manage these rooms. They wanted their cut so they didn't lose money on it. But like at the end of the day, they were like, we don't care about these laundry rooms. Like we just don't want to deal with it. So it was a perfect first customer for us because one, it was high touch. We're happy to do high touch. The company at the time was just me. So Mm -hmm. I was running around doing installing machines and doing all sorts of stuff. And what it allows us to do is really prove the model that this revenue is recurring and then start to size up what the market actually is revenue wise. Mm-hmm. And how do you think about your market? Because you obviously, I think in one way you already had like the B2B contract, you have Veritas as a customer. That's going to be, you know, very compelling to a venture capitalist that's looking for very, you know, B2B right. focused businesses, but you do have to quantify how many people need to wash their clothes every week, every day, every month, you know, obviously there's companies that are big. I mean, you know, companies that are doing it direct to consumer, but from a B2B position, did you have to do any of that? Or was it just kind of like self-exclamatory for you with the market size? 
So no one knows about laundry, right? Yeah. So especially not a Silicon Valley VC. Yeah. You know, they're, they're kind of like, oh, my house cleaner does my laundry. Like I don't do my laundry, yeah. let alone pay quarters in a basement. So yeah. it was, it was a tough sell at first, but when you start to size out the market and how much revenue is going through this, there's two private equity owned incumbents in the space. One's called Wash mm -hmm. and one's called CSC. Uh, one's owned by EQT Infrastructure Fund, and one's owned by Pamploma and Ontario's Teachers Fund. So massive private equity infrastructure funds own these pretty massive companies because they throw off something like seven hundred billion to a billion dollars in revenue a year, yeah. and it's it's beautiful, recurring, it's very predictable. And so that was really the story of like, well, hold on, these laundry rooms are everywhere. There's these established businesses with no digital transformation. They failed miserably at digital transformation. And here we are able to come in and solve a lot of these problems. So that was the original story behind Tumble. And that's how we raised kind of the initial capital. The more we installed these machines, the more we realized that these assets were wildly underutilized. And by that, I mean, these things were turning maybe once or twice a day. The way that you would size for a building is basically for peak usage. You look at how many people are in that building and how many would use it between Friday to Sunday. Um, and because that, those were the hours that people cared about. But the rest of the week, they were just sitting there totally empty. Yeah. And the story then became was like, well, hold on. If we can network these underutilized assets together and use on-demand logistics companies like DoorDash or Postmates or some of these others, um, we can not only drive more money through these assets, but we can create a cheaper way to outsource laundry. Mm -hmm. And and so we started to work towards that path maybe early last year. Okay. Okay. Uh, so let's, let's dig into the, to the round as the fundraising and the money side of things. So, you know, you get this LOI from Veritas. I'm assuming you, did you already have your top 20 list of venture capitalists that you wanted to give you money? Had you picked out all the partners and the firms and, and just kind of all the, the companies that maybe were like you at that time that you thought you'd want to work with these specific people? Or was it just a shit show behind the scenes where you're like, hey, I got this contract. I'm just going to go blast it out to everybody. Like, What was your process on getting the money? And did you have a timestamp between, I think a lot of startup founders, you get these large enterprise contracts, you're just yourself, you're a service provider, but now you have like, you know, you have SLAs, I'm assuming with Veritas, you have these qualifications and these standards you have to meet. You have price, all different types of standards and qualifications. So I'm assuming you needed the money pretty quickly or, or maybe not, but how did yeah. you approach that? And, and how did, how did that process work out? Yeah. So our, our first check-in was 200 grand. That was enough to get me to, to quit my job. And I worked, I went without a paycheck for about a year and a half, um, just fully focused on growing the business. And we just kept developing what we could and getting it to some, some amount of scale that we could grow this platform. The other thing that we ran into was, you know, we were having the traditional model of this business is that we, we own the equipment. Mm -hmm. So we would buy the equipment, put it in. There was sort of a CapEx heavy. We expected that at some point we would be able to get debt financing for equipment. Um, but this was 2021. Mm -hmm. And so uh, everyone was pretty obsessed with crypto back then. There was a lot of money floating around venture capital. And so we went out and yeah, did I have a list? Absolutely. I've been told no by pretty much everyone. Yep. Uh, and as, any, you know, as, as all good ideas pretty much start out, when someone's focused in some sort of hype cycle, they really don't want to listen to anything else. And so we were able to string together quite a bit of money. We just sort of stacked safes, mm -hmm. talked to individual investors, raised 50,000 50, to 500,000 at a time all the way up until about May of last year where we actually closed that seed round. So it took about a year to raise that $7 million. Mm -hmm. So it's $7 million total and, and it was kind of these stack safes. You talk to investors. How many people did you have to pitch to get to $7 million clearing the clearing the wires? There's something like 100 people on our cap table gotcha. right now. Okay, so, so a large, large <laughs> amount of people that, that, that actually committed in yeah. capital, which... Yeah, there's there's four four or five funds and um, a whole bunch of individuals that have been you know just staunch supporters because you know and that that, that like I said there's a lot of there's a really interesting way and and Keith Raboy talks about this like if you're working in venture capital 
one of the worst things you can ever do, and this is probably in life, right? Is make a pro con list mm -hmm. and like list things out with equal weight. Yeah. And you know, you're if you do that with a company, you're gonna get just nothing but cons yeah. all the way yeah, down because, because the pros yeah, the just aren't gonna be the exactly right. Way more so positive success stories. Right. I mean, and, and like, if you're judging anything slightly complicated, like a pro con list is, is terrible. Like a person, a company, like no matter what pros pro con list is probably the worst decision-making framework out there. When you're looking at a company, it's far more effective to say, okay, how big is this market? And what are the three things that it would take for a large company to exist in this fractured market? And can this company solve those three things? And so what we, by that time, we had realized that there's this sort of larger $200 billion laundry market that's spread across vended laundry, commercial uh, linen and uniform supply, and then consumer laundry and dry cleaning. And no one has ever aggregated any of that together. The largest company is Sintus. They're a laundry company. They do $8 billion a year in revenue. They're trading at $46 billion market cap. That's a 7x multiple that's better than SaaS right now, and they are a laundry company. So if you can figure out how to better utilize assets that are right across the street from where the laundry is being created, you are absolutely poised to just totally capture this market. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at Tumble, we have distributed network, right? We have this distributed infrastructure. That was the hardest part for us to do, and we're just crushing it in that, that space. We have the platform to bring both the demand and supply side together. And then we have it, an extremely efficient way to build an on-demand flexible workforce and push that workforce to where we need to, because we have direct access to residents who want to make money. So we actually hold the three key things necessary to dominate this space. Okay. And that's really why we're able to raise money and, you know, continue to, to move forward when you, when someone without a whole lot of open-mindedness would look at this and say, this is a CapEx heavy laundry business. But if you, if you frame it up much more like, okay, this company could actually go after this $200 billion market. What are they doing? I could buy every laundry, like every laundry machine in the country for $5 billion and we'd be making $25 billion a year in revenue. So, and then everyone would be happy, right? So that's really what's going on. And it took a long time to frame up that story. And once you can figure out how to like put it in terms, like this was always a dream. If you go look at our first pitch deck, this was the dream of our first pitch deck. And we had diluted our story because people said it was impossible. I mean, I've literally been laughed out of pretty much every VC office in Silicon Valley. But today we're growing 100% quarter over quarter. We're doing millions in ARR. We're quite literally growing revenue faster than companies that were unicorns last year. So who's yeah, laughing now? No, it's a consistent thing that people have to do every week. Let's jump into uh, what I want to call kind of performance and learning. Because obviously for you to be able to, within a two, three year window, become super educated in this stuff, know who your top competitors are, takes a lot of research, takes a lot of, you know, finding out information. What has been your strategy there when you're talking about and you're pitching a business like Tumble, which it affects everyday people's lives, but obviously you're building it as a venture-backed business. So you need to be able to have these comps. You need to be able to understand how you're going to make a billion dollars doing this. What has been your approach there with just understanding how to submerge your mind to continue to tell this compelling story and continue to grow this business to become a outlier in this space where it's not just a lifestyle business. It is the, you know, the, the, a key vendor for some of these large property management companies or the largest property management companies, as you mentioned with Veritas here in San Francisco. Yeah. I'm, I'm big on aligning incentives, right? So like, I believe, I truly believe that there's a price point where none of us do laundry. I also truly believe that AI and automation are going to lead to the automation of laundry here very quickly because even in our product discovery, when we're talking about laundry rooms and how do I make this a better experience, even with in-unit washers and dryers and maids doing laundry, like the end of the day, no one wants to do laundry. Like that's really the, the result is like, I don't want to do laundry. 
So how do we make it at a price point where that's a realization for everyone? And same thing with dry cleaning and shoe repair, shoe cleaning, like whatever, any of those sort of garment services. And so that's what we're working on is how do you get to that point where you can make it a price point where it's far more economical for us to, instead of giving up 20 square footage in our 400 square feet apartments to a laundry machine that you can just outsource it in a convenient and price efficient way. And same thing for, you know, for everything else. So it's for, for me, it's being mission driven in, in that sort of realization because it's important. I think it's important. I think this is the future. I think this is the business model that will capture that future. And it really drives the team forward and drives me forward every day. And with the business that you're building, it still does impact the human aspect of our lives. I think if you think about right. you know, the difference of these Airbnb Uber type products that we've been able to get access to in the past 10 years are they are bits and atoms type products, right? Like you have to have a human involved in this process and it's not a purely automated process yet, right? I mean, maybe we'll have robots doing our laundry in the next 10 years at this rate, but there is the human component to that. Are there any specific areas where building a business like this, there are things you have to think about um, that that give you kind of a unique advantage as opposed to a business that's just building a pure s- software company? I mean, you are doing the heavy lifting of routing pickups and things like that. You have a human component. Uh, how does that, how do those things give you, give you, uh, you know, advantages as opposed to maybe some of your competitors who, who aren't, or just have it, you know, they just have technology or hardware. Yeah. I, I mean, what, what it comes down to is doing the hard things, right? So I had enough conviction in this idea that, you know, when someone told me that, we would never be able to get money to buy laundry equipment. I just knew it was going to be very difficult to do. Right. And on top of that is once you acquire that network capacity, we're not going anywhere. We've never turned a building in our entire history. So we have an extremely sticky recurring revenue base that that moat, that prop tech sales moat, that multifamily moat, no one, there's not a company that could start up tomorrow and and chase us out of there. So if you can build, if you do the hard things, it actually ends up being one of the, the best moats because of how capital intensive it is and how difficult it is to execute and build those relationships. So, you know, I started this company in 2019. It's 2023. We're just now realizing a lot of the hard work that we've done over the last four years of doing this. So the overnight success is really based on just a tremendous amount of hard work by a bunch of people. And it makes like the hard work is what makes this sticky. It's what makes it defensible. It's what's going to ultimately make this a multi-billion dollar business. Great. And now as we transition to the you know last segment of the show, I want to talk a bit about the marketing and sales cycle because I think that's another very important part of the process, right? To make those billions of dollars, you got to get LOIs with some of these very large, slow moving property management companies, these multifamily um, properties. And I'm assuming it's not easy just to get them on the phone or get them into a demo. So um, maybe give us a high level of, of how you thought about that. I mean, it seems like your first customer kind of landed in your lap based on a relationship you probably built. And then it was a perfect time. How have you built a playbook for continually being able to uh, sign these large uh, property management and multifamily uh, establishments? Yeah. I mean, the first one came, um, but even then expanding within that property management company was a lot of work. It's Real estate's very relationship based. The other thing is like, I don't have a sales background. Like I have a consulting background. I'm a chemist, but like I've never like been in B2B sales. And, you know, we had hired a sales guy pretty early on. Um, it wasn't a good fit. Really believe in doing founder led sales early on, but I was able to, to get a lot of the skills that I, I, I probably needed through, um, being on some of those meetings. But it was a lot of just grinding, showing up, doing the smaller, like not 
fun jobs, taking on a bunch of tiny contracts that they needed done that weren't lucrative, and then just executing and executing and executing and executing over and over and over again. And then they would throw a bigger property at us. And then they throw a bigger property at us. And then they throw a bigger property. We have one, we have one customer where we started with a property that was, I think it was 47 units. That was the first building that we had. It was five washers and five dryers. The third property that they sent to us was 775 units with over 80 sets of equipment that does, you know, it's probably, uh, it's probably around, $150,000 of, of ACV. So it's, it, for me, it's always been about showing up. It's about being the best absolute partner to these property management companies that you can be and delivering a product and an experience on, for both the customer and the buyer, but also the end user. And ultimately that's been the key to our success is that we've been able to come in. We've been able to execute. We've been able to expand within accounts and we've been able to deliver on the things that we say we're going to deliver. At a high level from a monetary perspective, you all are essentially, is it a SaaS subscription for each unit that you charge the company or do you have some kind of unique pricing model around transactions or like how how do you even structure that? Because I mean, I'm assuming people, you know, some buildings have more. Yeah, this is my, this is my favorite question. This is my favorite question. So we have the OG definition of recurring revenue, which before the 2000s just meant that it was revenue that you could predict to be consistent, right? And there's nothing more consistent than laundry. So if you go look at our... And I actually, I, I, I tweeted something about this yesterday, right? I will die on this hill that we have annual recurring revenue because I can show you cohort analysis with consistent average user spend. I can show you just the absolute straight line across the map of property revenues that come off of these things. And it's better than SaaS. Uh, if you go look at it, uh, and there's literally, I put up a, a tweet of our revenue sort of cohorts over the last, I think it's three years of data. It's, it's pretty good. So we, we do charge per transaction but it's the transaction frequency and the consistency that makes this a really, really interesting business. Got you. We'll, we'll make sure to link that um, tweet in the, in the show notes for people to go see how you think about it from that perspective. Uh, last few questions before I have you, it is daunting for a lot of founders to think about these B2B contracts and relationships. What does the vendor procurement world look like in this space? Cause I'm assuming there is, I mean, it's not as much a security thing, but it's like installing uh, s- software tools in properties, uh, you know, or, you know, you have to go to on site. Uh, you probably have to have contractors there working on site to get installations. You probably have some testing. Uh, what is the vendor procurement process like for you all to get up and running in, say, a hundred unit facility Obviously, you want to be doing thousand unit facilities over time. Like, what does that process look like, and how have you approached it to streamline it as much as possible? I mean, unfortunately, it depends company by company. There are sort of standardizations in this industry around kind of insurance and contracts and things like that. But yeah, it's unfortunately it's quite literally uh, property management company by property management company or owner by owner. And it depends on the size and, and the larger companies know that they have leverage. And so you'll get some grizzly like general counsel that's like redlining every letter yeah. in your contract, uh, for, for no reason besides that that's what he gets paid to do. And then you'll have a property management company that's sort of mid market that, you know, just is happy to get rid of the incumbent. So, and then actually we're in the middle of an RFP right now, uh, which I, I've never, I like, I've literally never done an RFP before, but you know, they've been very helpful. And, um, so it, it's quite the, the gambit. Like we've, we've literally had someone call one day and we've installed the next, and then we've had, you know, sales cycles that have taken a year. <laughs> so actually we signed a contract today that wow. started a year sales ago. Sales processes can be yeah. brutal, but it is good to have that mix of mid market 
customers that'll sign on, get started quickly. And then you have those larger ones that will take their time and have their GCs redlining the most basic things. Uh, well, Scott, this has been an awesome uh, episode. I think uh, many of the founders and the community here at Search4 uh, will definitely enjoy this conversation. How can people find you? I know you mentioned Twitter. Do you have any other specific places where you like to create stories around the tumble journey and the founder journey and then all any other resources that you have to recommend or any other kind of calls for our community for what you guys are building at tumble yeah absolutely so you, you can find us on our website it's uh www.tumble.to if you're in the san francisco area and you want to sign up for the on-demand pick'em delivery that website is jointumble.com and you can find us on linkedin twitter and Instagram, and it's all at Tumble Laundry. Tumble Laundry. This is the Stretch Forward Podcast. I'm definitely thankful for this episode with our guest, Scott Patterson, founder CEO of Tumble. And we will look forward to following the Tumble story over time. Uh, thanks for coming on the show today, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Matt. <laughs>